Dear friends of Jesus Christ, as I mentioned today in our scripture reading, a time of learning from the Bible, we're continuing our in-depth look at Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. Since it's been a while, since it's been late, late November where we left this off for a time, allow me to take a moment to help us get resituated. Corinth was and is a city in southern Greece. And the Apostle Paul spent a year and a half there on his second missionary journey. Corinth wasn't as big or as important as Rome, but it was an up-and-coming city in Paul's day, sort of a a multicultural center of commerce and trade. This was due to the fact that Corinth was situated at the crossroads of a major trading route. In addition to being a major city for business, Corinth was also a destination for those looking for a good time. Port cities are often like that, with many people passing through. The local establishments and temples were always busy. Now into that multicultural, busy place, enter Paul, and enter the good news about a man named Jesus who was crucified and raised from the dead. Paul had a fruitful year and a half of ministry in Corinth. He made tents with Priscilla and Aquila during the day, and he shared the good news about Jesus on his nights and weekends. And amazingly, quite a few people came to faith in Christ. Paul discipled this new community in the gospel, but pretty soon it was time for him to travel on to other cities and plant more churches elsewhere. And so from Corinth, Paul traveled to Ephesus, where he stayed there for another uh, long stint. And it was while in Ephesus that Paul started to hear and to receive reports about what was happening back in Corinth. And what he read and heard about was not good. Things were bad. So bad that Paul picked up the pen and started to write. There were sharp disagreements in the church. There was lawsuits among believers and unaddressed cases of sexual immorality. Some were boasting about their spiritual gifts and heritage and were using this as leverage to knock others down. And big questions were being raised too about marriage, divorce, singleness, the resurrection, the Lord's Supper, and whether or not Christians could eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols. Hearing these things made Paul worry, and so he reached out with a letter. While the issues that Paul engages in his letter vary, his method and purpose is the same. His method is to apply the gospel, the good news about Jesus, to every situation. And his purpose is to encourage this struggling community on towards maturity in Christ. In the fall, we worked through the first six chapters And all those sermons can be found on YouTube or can be downloaded to your smartphone via our podcast. If you'd like to catch up, you know where to go. Today we turn our attention to chapter 7, which is a chapter all about marriage, divorce, and singleness. I thought about doing all of chapter 7 in one fell swoop, but that would be a rush job. And as you guys are starting to figure out, I don't like rush jobs. And besides, these are big, relevant issues that, well, impact us all in some way. And so it makes sense to slow down and to let God's work go to work. God's word go to work on our lives and imaginations. Today we'll be talking about marriage. 
And specifically, we'll be talking about the importance of sexual intimacy within the marriage relationship. I think this will be the last sermon in the series that deals explicitly with sexual things, but it's definitely part of this text, and here, here we go. We have to deal with it. So, turn with me now to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The words will be on the screen. Oh, looks like the picture got messed up there. Oh, well, it's okay. I'll be reading bits and pieces and then commenting on it um, as I have in the past. Hear what God is saying to the church. Now, for matters you wrote about, so remember, there's these verbal reports Paul is receiving, and then there's the written reports. Paul is turning now at this time to respond to the letter. So he's got a copy of the Corinthians letter in his hand, and he's responding to what they wrote to him. And he says, and he's quoting from their letter, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Pause. Let's stop and read that again. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. First time I read that, I feel like there was a typo in the sentence. It would read better if the word not were taken out. Where is this coming from? Well, one of the tricks of interpreting the New Testament letters is that we only get one side of the dialogue. It's like hearing only one half of a phone conversation. Paul has a copy of the Corinthian letter in hand, and the Corinthians know what they wrote, but we don't. And so we have to try to read between the lines. Most scholars believe that this sentence is a quotation from the Corinthians letter to Paul. They probably had a whole section in their letter that detailed their various thoughts and opinions on how to think about marriage and sexual intimacy within marriage. And so Paul jogs their memory by quoting a piece of their writing. So what's going on behind the scenes here? Why are they writing to him about this? And what would cause them to say it is not good for a man to have sexual relations with a woman? Well, let's remember a few things about the early church. First of all, it was started by a man named Jesus who did not have a sexual relationship with a woman at all. He was never married. And he said wild things like, if your eye causes you to look lustfully at a woman, gouge it out. And one day when Jesus was questioned about marriage in the resurrection, Jesus said, he said this, at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Jesus was definitely pro-marriage in that we know he was against divorce, but he certainly, uh, but he certainly invited people into and modeled the devoted celibate life. And then Jesus called another single devoted person named Paul. It's perhaps possible that Paul was married in his early life, most trained Pharisees were, but during his missionary years, we hear nothing about a wife, which leads many to believe that Paul was never married. And like Jesus, Paul didn't promote marriage as the only way or even the preferred way, as we'll see. And like Jesus, Paul had a lot to say about the dangers of sexual immorality. In addition to Jesus and Paul, there was this other philosophy floating around Greece that majorly minimized the body and sex, and this movement was called Gnosticism. Gnostics believed that the soul and spirit of a person were good, 
and that the body and flesh were bad. And some strands of Gnosticism taught people to try to transcend their physicality so as to purify themselves. Gnosticism, heard in certain ways, almost can sound a little bit Christian. I mean, didn't Paul say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify uh, the desires of the flesh? Maybe to be a Christian, like Jesus, like Paul, is to, well, leave sex behind. And to top it all off, do recall that the Christians in Corinth were a spiritual bunch with the reputation of trying to one-up each other in the spiritual life. I was baptized by Paul. People would boast about this. Well, I was baptized by Peter. Well, I can speak in tongues. What, what can you do? Well, my husband and I are so much in the spirit these days that we don't even have sex anymore, like the angels in heaven. So put all this together and you've got a confused bunch of Christians. Now, I don't want to sound sexist, but here it comes. It strikes me that any spiritual competition that involves fasting from sexual relations is more likely to be conceived in the minds of women than in the minds of men. Statistically speaking, men are the higher drive partner in the marriage. This isn't 100% across the board, but it's the majority report. And indeed, there is some evidence to suggest that this push to move beyond sex was being led by the ladies. And the men, well, there's evidence to suggest that they are struggling with this. Recall that most of chapter 6 is all about sexual immorality and why men should not be uniting themselves with prostitutes. So reading between the lines, there's perhaps a bit of what's going on on the other side of the phone call. And this is Paul's response. Now for matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and widows I say it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do, but if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now on the surface of things, it sort of appears as though Paul is kind of down on marriage in this chapter. It's like a concession created by God to deal with those who are so sexually charged that they just can't handle themselves. If this is true, then when I officiate at a wedding, it should sound a little like this. Dearly beloved, 
We are here today to witness the coming together of Johnny and Sally in the less-than-ideal institution of marriage. Since neither one of them can control themselves, well, this is the best we can do. It would be better if they stayed single, and so should you, but here we are. I think this reading misses the mark in a big way. Certainly Paul is very much pro the single and celibate life, certainly so, and he's going to promote it and he's going to elevate it. But he's also aware that this gift and call is not everyone's gift and call. And like the head of the body cannot say to the foot, I don't need you, so the celibate cannot say to the married, you're not welcome here. Marriage is simply another station, another call. What Paul is actually against in this passage is not marriage per se. What he's actually against is husbands and wives depriving each other of physical intimacy. And husbands or wives, but more often husbands, then slinking off to the brothels. No, 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 says Paul. Husbands, have your own wives. And wives, have your own husbands. Live into what you said yes to when you gave yourself body and soul to your spouse in marriage. When Brittany and I do premarital counseling with couples, I say to them that marriage is the coming together of bank accounts and bodies. Your life is being folded into each other's. A union is being forged. And that union is created, sealed, symbolized, and nurtured through the coming together of husbands and wives in physical sexual intimacy. Sexual intercourse is not the only part of marriage. Marriage involves friendship and partnership. It's an economic relationship, too. Marriage is basically a never-ending group project. Am I right? There's Pastor Dave's unromantic definition of marriage. Marriage is a never-ending group project. Until, of course, it does end. But there are other people who we do projects with. And other people we make commitments to, too. Business partners shake hands. They make commitments, deals with one another. Church members get baptized and then make vows before the body. Teammates have each other's backs on the rink and they huddle together to cheer after they score. But while these other commitments, and some of them are long-term, can sometimes feel like a marriage, they aren't. Why? Because connecting with a teammate on the rink is not the same as connecting with your spouse in bed. Sexual intercourse creates something that nothing else can. It creates a one-flesh relationship, and it too carries with it the possibility of creating new life. A handshake doesn't do that. My favorite thing to say about sex is that sex makes stuff and sex breaks stuff. It can make a marriage, it can break a marriage. It can create children, it can break apart families. So like the hearth is to the home, so physical intimacy is to marriage. It can make a home, 
or it could burn a home down. A lot of non-Christians think that Christians are ridiculous for trying to keep and uphold such a high community standard regarding the sex lives of our people. It's just sex. It's not really a big deal. What's, what's the big deal? But I say, that it's wise, or I say that it's wise to be careful with something that makes stuff and breaks stuff. To have and to hold exclusively is part of the marriage vow. And if you're kind of hum-ho about that aspect of the married life, you might want to think twice about marriage. For according to Paul, husbands and wives don't just get to have sexual intimacy, but they have a responsibility, in fact, to tend to each other's bodies. This is what Paul says. A husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. What Paul is saying here is that husbands and wives have this duty to each other's bodies, and he's talking about sex here. Duty is sort of an interesting way to speak about it. Not our maybe most common way to speak about it. I've got a lot of jokes in here. You guys got to start laughing with me, okay? <laughs> or else I feel like, oh, that didn't land. So a few days ago, Brittany told me that she was, you know, desiring to connect. And I said, well, I will fulfill my duty. <laughs> duty. Now, of course, most of the time, and ideally, sex is not simply about paying one's marital dues. That does not sound right. But you know, sometimes it is. Sometimes you really don't want to. Maybe there's been an argument or a fight or some sort of disagreement. But you know actually for the sake of the bond, for the relationship, that you have to. But notice, and this is very important, that the emphasis for Paul is, not, is on giving, not getting. It's not you owe me, but I owe you. Most marriages would take a giant step forward, I think, if both husbands and wives follow Jesus' rule of thumb. It is better to give than to receive. So each husband should have his own wife, and each wife should has, have her own husband, and both ought to fulfill their responsibilities to the other. And that's not all. Listen to what Paul says next, and this is so radical. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. Every husband in Corinth would have said a hearty amen to this statement. Yes, yes, yes. Everyone knows that wives are the property of their husbands. Yes, thank you, Paul. But then Paul says this. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. That does sound a little different. He even uses the A word, right? Authority. Do you see the mutuality in all of Paul's sentences about marriage? Marital union is not about one party yielding their body to the other, but both parties yielding their body to one another. I am not my own. My body belongs to Brittany. And that means that she has a say over what I do with my body. 
She can forbid me from riding my bike down a dangerous road. She can tell me it's time to cut back on the Christmas cookies. She can tell me to shut the blinds before I take off my clothes at bedtime. My body is her body too. This yielding of self to another, it's pretty intense. I mean, who are you to say what I can and cannot do with the Christmas cookies, right? My body, my choice. But when you get into marriage, it's not your body anymore. Certainly a verse like this can and has been taken to terrible extremes. One husband I know of used to lock his wife in the house when he left. Like a dog in a crate. This is not the kind of yielding Paul asked wives to render to their husbands, and it is not the kind of authority that anyone should inflict upon another. No, godly authority affords life and well-being. To steward another's body is a sacred trust. And it's super vulnerable to yield yourself into the hands of another without any clothes on. If you've been burned, you probably won't be able to do it, at least not fully and completely. It may take years of therapy to truly open up, but deep and abiding intimacy can't really help it happen without this deep yielding of oneself. Everything seems so easy in the movies, but real life is way more complicated, and most every marriage partner comes into the relationship with wounds that make it hard to yield. And ideally, marriage is a context in which deep healing can occur. The good news is that this submission skill is transferable. In fact, we start to learn it first and foremost in relationship with Jesus Christ. As we yield our bodies to him, we can begin to trust his gracious leadership, which might just restore our capacity to yield our body to someone else. More could be said about that, but we have to keep going here. Paul continues, Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So the default mode for married couples, according to Paul, is not deprivation, but regular sexual engagement. The fire in the hearth needs to keep burning. But occasionally, perhaps, if both parties agree, I love the mutuality of all this, it may, be, it may be good to fast for a time so that you can attend more fully to your union with God in prayer. Now, one of the underlying reasons Paul gives for why regular physical intimacy is important for marriages is that he believes it is a useful way to battle sexual immorality. And there certainly is some truth to this. It is harder for Satan, Satan to tempt you to sin sexually when the home fires are burning nicely. Marriage is a containment unit of sorts. It's a place where we can give loving expression to the desires God gave us in a healthy, holy, happy way. But while this is true, it is also true, and Paul doesn't go into this, but we need to, 
It's also true that if sexual pleasure becomes an idol for one member of the union, then no amount of sex will ever satiate that desire. When our desire for sex is rightly ordered and in control, and we're, we're submitting our sexuality to Jesus, then sex becomes about making love, and it can be tender and beautiful and good. But when sex becomes an idol, making love is transformed into a consumptive activity. You see, idols are never satisfied. They always demand more, more novelty, more intensity, more, more, more. And wives, it is not your duty to satiate your husband's idols. Your body is not an object to yield up for consumption. And what's happening, especially in modern-day pornography, is that it's all about violence. And that's mainstream. This is what 16-year-olds are watching. This is what is shaping their imagination. But it is not normal, and it is not right. And husbands, if your sex drive is held captive by Satan, nothing on earth will satisfy it. And you have to know that. And you will burn down the house to try to get it. Maybe today is the day to admit you need help. Maybe today is the day to submit your sexuality to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And that goes for women as well as men. Paul is pretty matter-of-fact in his treatment of married sex, but the reality on the ground is usually a bit more complicated. I tell engaged couples that marriage is the coming together of bank accounts and bodies, but I also tell them that we all enter marriage with a sexual history, whether we've been sexually active or not. Our imaginations have been formed by media. Our hearts have been hurt by people that should have treated us better. Many women come into, these, come into relationships having suffered traumatic experiences, and all of that can make it very hard to yield to one another. And so I say today, please call. Let's talk. Brittany and I love to sit down with couples about to be married, and we'd love to sit down with couples who've been married for years. We have our own story to tell, and we'd love to hear yours and journey alongside of you. And we believe Jesus can do some pretty amazing things. Now, I kind of want to end on a lightish note by telling a story. Let me conclude by telling you the story of how a sex-obsessed 17-year-old became a 57-year-old elder in the church. This isn't a true story in the literal sense, but it might be awfully close to your own story and mine, although I'm not 57 yet. So, the 17-year-old, like most 17-year-olds, struggled with his urges. Sex was on his mind all the time, and he'd be ashamed if he knew all the things he thought about and did in his spare time. And then one day a young woman caught his eye, and well, he wanted to get to know her better. So he worked up the courage and asked her out on a date. The problem was that he didn't have any money, and he was kind of lazy and stayed at home playing video games. But now he wanted to take somebody out, so he needed to get some money. 
So he found a summer job, worked, asked the girl out. They went out for coffee. Immediately there was chemistry. It was a great first date, and pretty soon this young couple were holding hands and looking forward to being close to one another. The young man really wanted to keep moving things along. The trouble was that he was part of a community that said that sex belonged within marriage. The girl was part of that community too and shared that belief too. So the young man and woman tried to control themselves. They were mostly, mostly successful in not getting burned by their passions. Three years later, they were ready for marriage, really ready. The young man was still thinking about sex basically all the time. But now he had other things on his mind too, like, like his job, like how he was going to make enough money to pay for rent and what kind of career he should pursue. It suddenly felt like he needed to start getting his act together. Well, after a bumpy first year of married life, the young couple settled into a good groove. They worked through the challenges of setting up a home and the awkwardness of trying to communicate their wants and needs in bed. Then, surprise. The wife found out that she was pregnant and, man, now I've got to really get my life together, said the 25-year-old. I've got to buy a house. I've, I've got to start saving up for a minivan. Suddenly, he found himself thinking less about sex and more about his responsibilities as a husband and father. Trouble was that he found himself looking at porn on occasion. A support group started up at his church. He told his wife he needed to join. She was sad, but happy to see him seek help. At the same time as all this was happening, he's like, I get my career in order. So he started to take night classes at Georgian, and he began to find his way. Five years later, the man was in a much better place. He had two children running around, a modest home to maintain, and a busy career. Sex after the babies was still enjoyable, but harder to find the time. Now the couple had to be more intentional. It felt weird to schedule things out, but basically that was the only way they'd get around to connecting. Yes, life was busy, and then one day the pastor said, hey, I think you should become a deacon. And then the soccer commissioner called and said, hey, your son's team needs a coach. And the man said, yes. He still thought about sex from time to time, but very much, uh, but not as much as before. Now his drive wasn't as strong as it used to be. Well, time ticked on for this man, and pretty soon his kids were all at school. So he did a stint on the school board, and then his company made him partner, more responsibility. Then one day, the man's wife came down with a serious illness. So the man started working from home, a year went by, the elders came and prayed. The man and his wife started praying a lot more, too. Now the middle-aged man thought still less about sex, but, you know, there's a time for everything, and when your wife is sick, it's just not the time. Thankfully, praise the Lord, she recovered, and for a long time the two just held each other, thankful for every moment. At 55 years, the, old man's, the, the man's oldest child got married, started a family of his own, and at the wedding, the man looked around and was filled with such joy. Look at what our union has made, he said to his wife. 
Sex is no longer an every week thing for the man and his wife, but in a way it is more special and rich than it was in their younger years, for they trust one another fully and have learned to yield themselves fully. Now he's 57 and the pastor comes knocking again. Hey you, we think God is calling you to serve as an elder. What, me? Yes, you. And so the man thinks about it. Over the years, Jesus has become more important to him. He's learned to yield to him too. And the man thinks about his soon-to-be-born grandchildren and what does he desire for them. He desires that they grow up in a community that will support them along the narrow path that leads to life. And so he says, yes. And that is the story of how a sex-obsessed teenager became an elder in the church. Some of you are like, oh man, that's my story. (laughs) Mine too. What's the point? Well, isn't it pretty cool that this journey of sanctification and growth began with a sex drive? If channeled in the right direction, these desires that God gave us can be transformed into something so achingly beautiful like a warm hearth in a home. Marriage is not for everyone, and Paul is clear in chapter 7 that married people will have tons of hardship in life. And yes, that is true. But it is also a good option for those who have been called to it. And to think we are all here alive and kicking today because of the union of a man and a woman. God has done an amazing thing. Thanks be to him. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, as we say at weddings, we give thanks that you have created and redeemed us to live lives of love. In the beginning, you created them. Male and female, you created them. And when Adam first saw Eve, he said, Here at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And the two were naked and felt no shame. What a great creation you have made in marriage. Thank you for calling us into this, giving this as a good opportunity as a way for us to serve you and someone else specifically. We know it's not the only way you call us to, Lord. And for many others, the path is singleness. I pray for those today who might be feeling sad that that's the case. And Lord, for the married couples in our church, bless us. Keep us, keep us growing closer to you and to one another. I pray, Lord, um, that our drives would be found in their right place and that there'd be rich and fruitful connection, sharing, yielding support in all the marriages in this church. And where there is pain and where there is breakdown, Please minister your healing grace. 
Lord, we need you. Married couples need you, but we all need you. And we thankful, we're thankful, Lord Jesus, for your good and healthy authority in our lives. May we more and more learn to yield ourselves to you and your good plan for us. Thanks be to God uh, for, um, for your gift of new life in Christ. Help us to live that out together, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.